here we go into Mark's Gospel. And um, we have, uh, it's actually been, I think, two years now since we finished Luke's Gospel. It was just as we moved into this building that we uh, finished up in Luke. And so we haven't actually looked at a Gospel account for all that time. And what we tend to do in this church is we um, work through different genres. So we try and do some Old Testament narrative and then some New Testament narrative and Old Testament prophecy and then New Testament letters. And we kind of go back and forth every eight or ten weeks and so, so that we're getting to, working through the, uh, the whole Bible and we're seeing different aspects of the Bible and how it complements each other. Um, and so that's the way we do things. And we haven't done a gospel for a while, so we're now in Mark and we're beginning a summer series, which may go through well into the autumn. Um, and um, I was thinking about what to call this series in Mark. And I think the simplest thing to call it would be good news, which is um, where we get our word gospel from, from the Greek word evangelion. Uh, Ave or EU means good, and then angelion is message. Um, and so um, it's where the name evangelical comes from. Um, often we think of evangelicals, well, it depends on where you've grown up and what your experiences are as to whether that's a positive or negative word. Um, but I think um, someone who's just grown up outside of church culture in this country would think evangelicals are those um, weird people in America who vote for Trump, um, uh, depending on whether they're positive or negative about Trump. Um, it's got nothing to do with politics. It just simply means good news. And if we're being truly evangelical, then we're sticking to the good news as revealed about Jesus in scripture. Um, and so here we are in the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to see why it's called good news. Um, but just before we get there, I'm actually going to start. I tend to work through word by word uh, through every passage. Um, and the first word on your, uh, on your sheets. Um, so if you're wondering where the passage is, it's on the inside of your service sheets. Um, or you can open your Bibles if you've got one of these Bibles at page 1002. And Obviously, the first word on the page there is the word Mark. Um, and yet, in the first manuscripts that we've got, uh, the word Mark wasn't there. There was no name. Um, and so some people say, sort of sceptical scholars looking back and sort of discovering this, um, would say, well, we can't know who wrote it. And actually, it's probably a myth or legend or like the telephone game, sort of one person said, oh, I think it might have been Mark, and then you know, gradually that passed on. Or, or someone thought, oh, it would be good for, let's put that name at the top. And, um, and so people guess whether, well, is this, is this legend? Um, did Mark actually write it? Um, one of the wonderful things about um, the Gospel of Mark and Luke especially is that they weren't famous in their own right. And so the idea that anyone would make up that Mark wrote Mark is ridiculous because there's no clear evidence that he was even an eyewitness himself. He might have been, some conjecture he might have been, but he certainly wasn't important. And in fact, as if you've been working through the book of Acts with us, he's got a track record of deserting and causing mass division um, between those who supported Paul and Barnabas. Um, and so this isn't someone you would choose to say wrote this eyewitness account unless he actually did. Um, and church history has it that Mark, um, who's also called John Mark, um, ended up in Rome with Peter and as Peter was in prison 
and trying to make sure that his eyewitness testimony was recorded, he spoke to Mark and Mark would have partly transcribed what he said, partly put it into an orderly account. And the letter, uh, sorry, the, the Gospel of Mark is wonderfully orderly. It's, it's the shortest of the Gospels. Um, I'd encourage you to, to read it if you're um, not used to reading the Bible regularly or you found that difficult recently and you're wondering where to start. Why not work through Mark slowly and carefully um, and over the course of the summer track through it and then you can listen to the, the talks and see um, whether that helps you. But just the fact that it's by Mark actually increases the sense of reliability about it. And um, scholars tend to agree pretty unanimously that Mark is one of the earliest uh, gospel accounts of Jesus' life um, and that it was written no later than the early 60s. It could have been much earlier. It could have been in the the 40s and 50s. Um, We're not absolutely sure. But if it is true that Mark finally compiled his account while Peter was in prison, it was probably written in the early to mid-60s. Um, So well within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, and it's a reliable account, therefore. Well, let's dive in. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's not about Mark. It's the beginning of the good news, the gospel, the evangelion. Now, I'm just going to pause there. Good news, that word in Greek, evangelion, anyone reading it would have seen that it has... A lot more than the significance of the words good news in our language or a very different significance, the way gospel has come into our language from a medieval word. Um, Gospel comes from good spell, good news um, in, um, I think, Anglo-Saxon English. Um, It had a lot of political significance. An evangelion, a, a gospel, a good news going out among the people would normally be a a huge sort of political announcement. Um, When an emperor was born or um, when an emperor became an emperor, uh, the gospel of the news that Caesar Augustus uh, was on his throne uh, would go out among the people. And so when Mark starts like this, he knows this is political. And he's saying this book should... As you read this, if you understand this, if you get this good news, it should change your politics. Not not in the way that we think of it, whether you vote Conservative or Labour, that's that's irrelevant. It should change your allegiance. It should change your mindset. It should change the whole direction of your life. This is momentous good news. This is the kind of good news that um, at the end of the Second World War, when it was announced, suddenly there was dancing in the street. There was mass celebration. It's that kind of good news. It's that important. It's that significant. And if we've started to think this is just merely interesting, then we've forgotten just how important it is. And if friends and family and neighbours and people we meet think that we're just Christians because, well, that's a cultural thing or that's just personal preference, well, then they've missed the point as well. Because this will, if, if you understand this good news, It should wholly change the direction of your life. And it's good news about a person, about Jesus. The name Jesus uh, is from, uh, is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua or Yeshua. And that Hebrew word means Yahweh saves. It's the name of the Lord and it means he saves. 
And so Jesus' name has huge significance. It's good news about God's saviour, the Messiah. And uh, the Messiah is another Hebrew word. In fact, um, in the Greek version, it's translated Christ. Uh, So Christ and Messiah, they're interchangeable. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. And uh, Messiah comes from the Hebrew (coughs) word Mashiach, to anoint, or anointed one. And um, they anointed their kings and their high priests. Uh, But mostly this was a title for the the kings who were anointed by the high priest uh, to be the Messiah over Israel. And the most famous Messiah is King David. And God made great promises to King David that he would have a greater son who would one day rule and reign and fulfill all the promises that David and his immediate descendants failed to fulfill. In fact, the more those messiahs failed, every Jewish king was a messiah, the more they failed, the bigger the expectations of the true messiah, the true son of David, became. And you can read that through in, in, in the build-up in the Old Testament prophecy. And actually, the current king of Israel, Herod, definitely could not be called a messiah. He wasn't known as a messiah. He was king, but only because the Romans put him in as king. He wasn't actually even an Israelite. I don't know if you knew that. Um, king Herod was an Edomite. That means he was descended from Esau, um, and the people of Israel are descended from Jacob. And so... Um, King Herod was not even an Israelite, let alone a descendant of David, which is why he was so tetchy at the idea that there might be a true son of David, a true Messiah King out there. And you know from the other Gospels that he wanted anyone who would be a rival to him in that sense dead. So the current King of Israel is Herod. And there was a growing expectation, and there had been for hundreds of years, that even though there was no true son of David on the throne, that all the promises that there would one day be a son of David who would rise to be the true Messiah, um, that that would happen. And and there was an understanding that that person could come from relative obscurity because many of the descendants of David were now no longer um, aristocrats or um, high-flying nobles or royalty. Um, Since the scattering, there were lots of Uh, families that were descended from David. And the question is, where would the true Messiah, the true son of David, come? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Now, for probably 20 years of my Christian life, in reading that, I assumed that that was a divine title. And actually, in the English translation, we've got capital S, son, Um, And so we assume that that's talking about the eternal Son of God, that that here, right at the beginning of his gospel, Mark is saying, Jesus is not only the earthly Messiah, he is the heavenly, eternal, divine Son of God. But I think from having read and been taught, I I don't think that's what Mark's saying at all. I think what Mark is saying is that Jesus is the true Son of God, unlike the failed sons of God. And... um, Son of God was used mostly in the Old Testament, not as a divine title, but rather as a kingly title or mostly a relational title. And um, one of the things that people who like to engage in debate against Christianity raise regularly, um, perhaps especially Muslims raise this, is that um, you read through the Gospels and nowhere can you read it saying Jesus is God. 
Um, and um, one of the challenges Muslims will often make, if you, if you engage with a Muslim who's sort of well-versed in, in debate, uh, they'll say, where does it say in the, in the Bible, Jesus is God, worship him? Or where does Jesus say, I am God, worship me? And um, instead, the, this term son of God is used, and I don't think it means primarily a divine title. It comes to mean that. It comes to mean that when we see that he's exalted and raised, and we get to see that the eternal son of God, who has always been, took humanity to himself. Um, but actually, if you think about um, Hebrew society and then the Greek and Roman society around them, if, if you bandy around terms like Son of God or Jesus is God, it will have a very different meaning to the audience than what is really true. They would, they would think of it, and actually Muslims often object to the idea that Jesus could be God because they, they think that somehow God came down, had sex with Mary, and produced this sort of demigod figure along the lines of Greek and Roman mythology. And actually it's striking that the New Testament is therefore very careful not to use that language. What we are told again and again in the New Testament and in the Gospels and increasingly people recognise Jesus as this is that Jesus is Lord. Now that's very significant as we're going to see in the coming verses in Mark. Now all of this Verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is written in the context of a huge building of hundreds of years of prophecy, uh, right up until the end of the book of Malachi. And your Old Testament and the Hebrew um, uh, Tanakh um, ends with the, the book of Malachi. And 400 years later, Jesus turns up. Well, actually, before him, someone else turns up. Um, but he was announced. Let's have a look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, Mark isn't writing with speech marks and so on. He's writing, uh, quoting things and expecting us to get the allusions if we know our Old Testament well. Um, and so the editors have put in all those quotation marks. And Mark writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he immediately quotes Malachi. He's about to quote Isaiah. And and I think the reason he does that is because Malachi being the last book and the book that sets up the kind of expectations of who's going to come next would have been very much in people's minds. It's the more famous, famous bit. So he quotes Malachi saying, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And Malachi 3 and 4 uh, set up this thing and then Malachi 4 ends with this expectation that this messenger who's coming is going to be an Elijah type figure who's going to be like Elijah. Well, we're going to pick that up again when we look more at John the Baptist. Um, so he quotes the more famous passage first, Malachi, but then he actually wanted to highlight the more hidden passage, it seems. This is why he says, Isaiah says, because he comes on in our verse 3 to quote Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, Isaiah was writing before the exile, and he was telling uh, the people back in uh, around 700 BC um, that um, soon, if you don't repent, God is going to send uh, a conqueror who's going to come and wipe out um, the land and take you into exile. And then he anticipates, within that, that promise of, of doom and judgment, he also anticipates salvation. And so when they're in the wilderness... And, and perhaps even more, once they end up in the wilderness, they've got Isaiah 40 ringing in their ears. Um, 
Isaiah 40 comes telling those going into exile that their time of exile will come to an end once they're in the wilderness. Saying what? Well, the end of verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The end of the exile, Isaiah says, and Mark quotes, will begin with the coming of who? The coming of the Lord. And if you were to turn back to Isaiah 40, you can do it if you like, but I can just tell you, if you turn back to Isaiah 40, you'll see that that word Lord is in capitals, L-O-R-D. And that is uh, the editor's way of respecting the name Yahweh, which is written in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, which is the name of the Lord that is so precious that Jewish people wouldn't even say the name of the Lord. So powerful and precious. And so... This voice is going to come in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for who? For the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Um, Those who prepared a road for a king to come down would would go ahead, make sure boulders were cleared and so on, so that um, uh, the donkeys and those carrying the the various chariots and so on could could pass through without ease. Make Make a straight road, make a clear path for him. And this voice is going to come in the wilderness to prepare the way, but for God himself to come. For Yahweh, the end of the exile will begin with the coming of the Lord. So Mark builds and builds and builds. He doesn't say explicitly, Jesus is God. But what he says is someone's going to come and prepare the way for Yahweh himself, for the Lord. Because of course the word God could mean, well, Greek and Roman type gods who were sort of nasty and went around having sex with whatever and beating people up and so on, that kind of nasty God. And he wanted people to know, no, the Lord is coming. Yahweh, the one who defines himself in the scriptures. And so, verse 4, well, who comes? Who is that voice in the wilderness? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching or proclaiming. That word for preaching or proclaiming could be calling out. So a voice calling out in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance, of repentance. Well, the combination of the word good news and repentance shows that this really is a message that is so momentous that it's supposed to change your mind. Repentance simply means a kind of reversal, an about swing of mind. And so John is saying you need to completely change the way you think. And that will change everything about you. John is preaching a baptism of a complete change of mind and thought. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the River Jordan. So here we have um, Jews and those uh, from the surrounding Judean countryside. So this is all Jewish people, Israelites, going out to meet this voice in the wilderness, to find out, wow, has Elijah really come? Is he really preparing the way for the Lord? They've come to hear him, and he is preaching to them a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins, so a complete change of life, and he is baptising them. Now, we don't actually know exactly when baptism began, and if you were here for our our series on on baptism, um, you would have heard that. We don't know exactly when baptism began. It could have begun with John the Baptist. It could have been that the Lord gave him this as a picture, or it could be that what we see happening later on among Jewish people 
is that it was a way for Gentiles to become Jews. It was a, uh, used by Jewish people to bring Gentiles into Jewish heritage without them, um, or sorry, into Jewish practice without them needing to become fully Jews in terms of circumcision and so on. Um, but whatever it was, the thing that's so striking here is rather than all the ceremonial washings that the, the Jews were used to doing for themselves as part of their ritual, John was saying, no, we need something much bigger, something that shows that you have completely changed and you can't do baptism to yourself. John was baptizing people. You see, uh, verse 5, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him. So they go into the river, and it seems not to be a sprinkling. Why would you need to go into a river if you're just going to be sprinkled as a baby? Um, and they go into the river, and John baptizes them, and he lowers them down into the water as a sign that they have died to their old life. And they're under the water as if their old life is dead and buried. And then they're raised to new life as they're baptized in the River Jordan. So these are Jews needing to be converted. This is a break with covenant continuity. Um, one of the debates between those who believe in infant baptism and those who believe in believer's baptism uh, is this question of how much continuity is there in the covenants? Are we, are we continuing the line of Abraham? And just as uh, little babies were circumcised, um, little baby boys in Judaism were circumcised because they were part of the family of Abraham, so maybe uh, little babies should be baptized if they're brought into the covenant family of Abraham through Christ. But here we get a very clear break with covenant continuity. And John is saying, and he makes it even clearer, as we saw in Matthew, um, that to be born a Jew is not enough. To be born into the right family is not okay. You need personally to have a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To be truly counted among the people of God, you need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Mark gives us a little bit more detail about John. Verse six, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, for us, that doesn't mean a lot. Um, but imagine if um, I came to church today uh, wearing a massive red and yellow S on a blue suit. Who do you think I'd be dressing up as? Superman, obviously. Um, and you'd think, well, Alex clearly isn't Superman. You could tell that by my physique. But he's obviously representing Superman. And as people went out to the wilderness and they saw John wearing clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and they knew that his diet was of locusts and wild honey, they would immediately know that although this might not actually be Elijah, he was certainly dressing up as Elijah. And he was claiming with his very appearance and his very location and with his very diet that he is the one who's come to fulfill that Malachi promise, that Elijah would come and reunites the family of God around God himself. And verse 7, this was his message. We've already been told his message, haven't we? Baptism of repentance. But just in case we thought it was all about him, he's pointing to some, something and someone far greater. Verse 7 continues, this was his message. After me, John says, comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He's saying, I, I wouldn't even have the value of a slave in his household. I'm there, there's no way that, if you think I'm great, 
And actually, Jesus elsewhere describes John as the greatest of all people up until that point, the greatest of all the prophets. And yet John sees himself in comparison to Jesus as lower than a slave. He says, verse 8, and he explains why. I baptize, or I immerse you in water, but he will baptize or immerse you in the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, what, what I do symbolically, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus does it in reality, in your hearts. He can actually transform you. I can only dunk you in water. He can dunk you, as it were, in the Holy Spirit of the living God and give you a true and living relationship with God himself. And with that build-up, this great one preaching in the wilderness, fulfilling the prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah, Jesus walks on to the scene. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. I don't know if it's ever, it's ever struck you. We, we looked at this um, a few weeks ago, um, but it's worth thinking about it again. Surely Jesus was the one person who didn't need to be baptised. If, if, if John is doing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what's going on? Well, Mark, in his kind of condensed version, doesn't give us all the detail, but elsewhere we see the conversation uh, with John and Jesus happening, and, and John says, well, I, you should be baptising me. I, I shouldn't be baptising you. And Jesus says, no, let's do this to fulfil all righteousness to fulfill all righteousness. And, and Jesus is saying he is going to go through everything <clears throat> that every other human being needs to go through, but he's going to fulfill it perfectly. If you're anything like me, however well your prayer life is going, however much you're reading your Bible, however kind you're being to your family and to your friends and to your church family, you know how far you fall short of the standards of the living God. And the more you read about the wonderful life of the Lord Jesus, the more you realise I don't live up to his standards at all. But Jesus came to fulfil all righteousness, to fulfil the righteousness that you fail to fulfil. We don't even begin. We're, we're, we're like John. In fact, we're worse than John, aren't we? we? We don't even deserve to untie Jesus' sandals as a slave in his household. But Jesus came to fulfil all righteousness so that as we follow him, he takes us through the waters of baptism. He takes us through life and out the other side, through death and into resurrection life. And Jesus' baptism, as we look at it here, gives us clues about what our baptism signifies as well. But let's have a look firstly at what it identifies about Jesus. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. <clears throat> now that word is very significant. John, uh, Mark doesn't just say he saw heaven opened. He puts in the word torn because he's going to use that word again right at the end of his gospel. When something very significant was torn. When the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that divided, what did it divide? It divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It divided, as it were, heaven from earth. It divided the presence of God from the presence of human beings. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, beginning to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, the heavens are torn open. In Jesus, earth and heaven are reunited. One day, Jesus promises, 
that the new heavens and the new earth will come together and heaven and earth will dwell together. The Lord will dwell with his people. And in Jesus, we see the beginnings of that happening. As he comes out, out of the water, heaven is torn open. Access to heaven is made. There's a coming together of heaven and earth. And the spirit, who is normally invisible, takes the form of a dove and descends on Jesus. So we've got the Son, we've got the Spirit, and then the voice of the Father comes from heaven, saying, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here we have the Lord, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, depicted in the baptism of Jesus for the very first time that kind of inkling that we get in the Old Testament that God is somehow plural, the, the God who on the first page of the Bible said, let us make mankind in our image, that God is both one God and yet in relationship with himself. We get to see that relationship for the first time in Christ as he comes up out of the water. We see heaven torn open. We see the spirit descend on the son and the father say, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We see his identity revealed, but it's an identity of hope. You'd think when God comes in all his purity and wonder, he could only judge the world and burn us up like fire. And yet somehow Jesus is showing us that we can still live and heaven and earth be united in him, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Well, what we get to see here is that baptism in water, John saying, I can only get you wet, what I can only do symbolically, Jesus can do in reality, is therefore connected in some way in its symbolism to baptism in the Spirit, which uh, Jesus talks about. And there's a lot of debate in the churches as to what is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well, the first thing we get to see in Jesus' baptism is as he is baptised, the first thing he hears is the voice of the Father say, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And so the first thing that, that baptism achieves as through the symbolism, we commit our life to Christ. And as we, as we saw, as we did that little series on baptism, for, for the early church, conversion was baptism. So, so when someone said, how may I be saved? The answer was repent and be baptized. So when you committed your life to Christ through baptism, the first thing you would hear, as it were, was the reassurance that you are a child of God, that you're in Christ, that you're united to him, that, that just as he was he died and was buried and raised, so in him you are died, buried and raised in baptism. And so you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is my daughter whom I love, with her I am well pleased. We have that reassurance if we're trusting in Christ that we are united to him. We're united to him. The second thing that happens at baptism, we see in the very next verse, verse 12 and the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. You see two things going on. As the, the, the physical symbol of baptism happens, you get the reassurance of sonship from the Father, but then you get empowerment by the Holy Spirit for mission, and Jesus' earthly mission begins. So the reassurance of sonship, and then at once, verse 12, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And for those very first Christians, it seems that those two things were disconnected. And the big debate in the church today is, are those things connected or disconnected? And, and the answer is yes. 
both, actually, and I think we can divide far too much about these things. You see, those first believers, they obviously received the assurance of sonship. They were baptised. Um, they were trusting in Christ. They were praying amazingly. I mean, you see their prayers in Acts chapter 1, and they are praying like crazy. They're clearly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, reassured of his love. They have a relationship with the Father. But Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, he says to them, wait. He, he says, um, uh, in the earlier verses of Acts chapter 1, he says, wait until you've been baptised with the Spirit. And then he says, you will receive power, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we get to see there is, is Jesus, and Jesus actually refers to John's baptism. And he says, well, there's two things going on in baptism. One is reassurance of sonship of who you are in Christ, and the other is empowerment for mission. Now, is baptism in the Spirit a repeatable event? No, in the sense of conversion, but yes, absolutely, in the sense of reassurance and empowerment. And so sometimes if we've come from very conservative churches and we hear people praying that we would be baptised in the Spirit, we think, oh, no, these dodgy people are denying my conversion. Uh, and, and then uh, sometimes if we come from a much more charismatic background and we see, see everyone saying, no, 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 we received baptism in the Spirit at the moment we're converted, and we end up arguing, but the reality is both of us are right. We need to receive the reassurance of the Father. We need to be empowered from the Spirit from the moment we, we start living as a Christian. But then we need to go on being reassured, don't we? And we need to go on being empowered. And so there's nothing wrong with praying every day. Lord, baptise me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Or much more common biblical language is fill me with your Spirit. Which, of course, we get to see again and again and again throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. We were even praying it this morning as we began. So verse 12, at once the Holy Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was tempted, uh, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So the Spirit sends him out on mission and what's the first thing he faces? Well, he goes into the wilderness. Um, do you see how John emphasizes that? He, he sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness. He really wants to emphasise the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Now, clearly there's some kind of spiritual battle going on here with, with Satan and, and the angels tending to him. And therefore we get to see that this is much bigger than the immediate circumstances. And 40 days in the wilderness with no food. What does that remind you of? 40 days in the wilderness with no food. Well, it should remind us of the Israelites, as they went through the baptism, the waters of the, the Red Sea, the waters that could have been judgment and were judgment on the, Israelite, uh, on the Egyptian army that came chasing them, they went out into the freedom, they were to cross the wilderness and into the promised land, and that should have lasted them no more than 40 days. And it was going to be a time without food. And yet they started grumbling and complaining and not trusting the Lord. And so that grumbling generation ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. As they failed the test to trust the Lord, the Lord who'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Israel, God's firstborn son, failed. But here is the true Israel, the true firstborn son of God, who goes into the wilderness. And as 
he has no food. He doesn't start whining and complaining and saying, oh, Father, why did you send me? This is so rubbish. Oh, I should go back. I don't want to do this. No, Satan comes to him, tests him, we know from elsewhere, and challenges him. And Jesus responds, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Lord, you've put me in this wilderness. I don't understand exactly what's going on, but I will trust you. And as horrible as this experience is, I will trust you that you are taking me for my good. And Jesus fulfills all righteousness, the righteousness that you and I fail in again and again, the righteousness that the Israel that he came to save failed in again and again. Jesus fulfills it. And so, as he passes the test, he comes out into his public ministry, verse 14. After John was put in prison, I won't go into detail as to why that was, we can look at that another time. As after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Here's that momentous good news again. Jesus is proclaiming it. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. But as we close, just see the significance of this gospel, this record that was taken out verbally by all of Jesus' followers, that was written down and recorded for us in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. This reliable text says you should change your thinking, change your allegiance, change your politics, change your mindset, change the whole direction of your life. It is momentous good news based on Jesus who brings the kingdom of God into our midst. Everything should change as we face the Lord Jesus. Everything should change. And that repentance should go on and on, just as our baptism should go on and on. The reassurance of the love of the Father, the empowerment by the Holy Spirit, the repentance of the way that we live for ourselves, the desire to live for Jesus, and he should change everything, about everything, such that everyone should know that Jesus is the King and Jesus is our King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you brought good news, momentous good news. We pray that you would refresh us again by your Holy Spirit, remind us of why it's such good news. Reassure us of your love, the fact that you came to fulfill the righteousness that we failed to fulfill. And please help us to dig deep into Mark's gospel so that we can feed on you, on your word and delight in all that you've given us. In your precious name. Amen.